Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. What a shame, they might have said at his funeral. He was a fine, upstanding citizen. A sharp dresser, too. Remember some of those parties he used to throw? The food was always incredible. Too bad that dirty beggar Lazarus was always hanging around looking out for a handout. Gave me the creeps just to look at him. I wonder whatever happened to that loser. Those who knew the rich man might have been surprised to find out that he was condemned. He was likely respected and admired for all that he had accomplished. He probably thought that he was on the right track, too. He played by the rules, it seemed. There isn't any indication that he hurt or cheated anyone or that he became wealthy through dishonest means. He enjoyed his life, but there's no crime in that, is there? Why, then, did the rich man go to hell? He went to hell for the same reason as anyone else. He was unable to perfectly keep the commandments of God, and he failed to grasp the graciously offered gift of faith and the promises of the Savior. How can we know that the rich man lacked faith? We know this because no good works, the fruits of faith and signs of our salvation in Christ flowed out from him to his neighbor. They were not sins of commission which condemned the rich man, but sins of omission. In this parable, we see four clear violations of God's commandments by the rich man. Now, some of these take place after his death, so they don't serve to condemn him but they do indicate the attitude that he had in life and why his soul was sent to torment. The most obvious of the rich man's sins is in breaking the fifth commandment. You shall not kill. His sin is not overt. He did not make Lazarus poor or ill or hungry. He causes Lazarus no direct harm, but he kills Lazarus nevertheless. By withholding the plenty of his own life from this poor sick beggar, the rich man failed to help and support his neighbor in every physical need, as the small catechism explains. The rich man left Lazarus to suffer hunger and disease when it was easily within his means to help him. You'll recall that John the Baptist told those who were coming to him for baptism that they must produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The rich man gives no indication of producing such fruit and thus no evidence of repentance. Jesus, too, spoke of those who showed no faith by their lack of care for the hungry, the ill, the poorly clothed, and so on. He will send them away at the time of judgment into the same eternal fire and torment as the rich man in this parable. The rich man cannot claim ignorance of Lazarus' plight. Lazarus' poverty and illness were daily testimonies to the rich man's callousness and disregard for his fellow creature. Like the Canaanite woman who sought merely to pick up the crumbs of Jesus' words to meet her needs. Or the prodigal son who longed for the pods being eaten by the pigs. 
Lazarus would have been satisfied with very little. Lazarus longed only for what the rich man would have considered waste. But he was not shown love. In the second place, we see that the rich man's condemnation arose from breaking the first commandment. He had other gods before the Lord. He did not fear, love, and trust in God above all things. He loved and trusted in His wealth on earth. And this was part of His undoing. Hell has been described as being eternally separated from God. The rich man had done that on his own. He had separated himself from God by his attitudes and his actions. His money, possessions, clothes, pride, and comfort, they had all become his gods. He was not punished for having a lavish lifestyle, but for loving it more than he loved God and neighbor. He did not acknowledge that his very body and soul were given and preserved by God, and that yes, his clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, and all that he had were daily and yes, richly provided by the Creator. He did not thank and praise, serve and obey God the way that God desires. In the third place, the rich man failed to keep the second commandment. Now, we do not hear him misuse God's name by outwardly cursing or swearing by it. Nor was he openly engaged in satanic arts or in blatant lies or deceptions. Nevertheless, while he is in torment, while his tongue is parched and dry and raw, feeling the agony that those in hell will experience, the rich man directs his plea for mercy and relief not to God, but to his ancestor, Abraham. In this time of trouble, he does not call upon the name of the Lord, but upon that of a mere man. He does not pray to God. He depends on his bloodline for salvation. The rich man's fourth violation is that of breaking the third commandment. He may very well have been a devout Jew in terms of keeping the Sabbath and all of its rules and its regulations, but there's evidence here that he did despise God's Word. He had failed to hold it sacred and to gladly hear and learn it. Rather, when Abraham said that the rich man's brothers had the opportunity to avoid hell by listening to Moses and the prophets, that is, by hearing and responding to the Word of God, the rich man objects. For him, the Word of God is inadequate, insufficient. Instead, he wants Lazarus sent from heaven to convey the need for repentance and faith. Abraham, knowing the power contained in God's Word and that his own salvation had been ensured by hearing and accepting the Word of God, tells the rich man that he is in error. If the Word of God is rejected in unbelief by those who will not come to faith, then even a miraculous sign such as a return from the dead will not convince them. What then of Lazarus? Did he keep God's law fully and thus earn the reward of eternal life? Did God somehow decide to balance out the scales, letting Lazarus wallow in squalor and pain during this life so that he might be compensated for his suffering with eternal comfort? We know that neither of those is true. Lazarus was a sinner just as certainly as he was saved. But where was his trust? 
There's no indication that Lazarus sought to steal from the rich man or from anyone else to meet his needs. He did not covet, or if he did, he repented of it. Lazarus sought only the provision of daily bread in accordance with God's will. He accepted the life that came to him by God's gracious hand, knowing and trusting that his true eternal needs would be met by the Lord. This trust is synonymous with faith. As the book of Hebrews describes it, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Like Abraham before him, Lazarus believed that God had good things in store for him. And this faith was credited to him him as righteousness also. It was not the state of wealth that condemned the rich man, nor poverty that saved Lazarus. It was the way they each handled the state of their lives. Where was their faith and their trust placed? To whom was love generated by that faith shown? A lack of faith is demonstrated by a lack of love. And it was for this that the rich man was condemned. We must always be clear. Good works do not save. They cannot save. Only faith in the sinless life, the atoning death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ do that. But good works flow out of a faithful heart, kindled by the gracious gifts granted by Almighty God. Wealth and prestige had turned the rich man inward toward protection and preservation of his current state, not his eternal well-being. This led to the neglect of the neighbor that God had given to him and to a missed opportunity to serve God through Lazarus. The rich man failed in this opportunity to love and to show his thanks for blessings granted. There was no demonstration of faith. What then does the lesson of Lazarus and the rich man say to us today? What God said about the difficulties of a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven remain true. It is impossible for those who focus on worldly wealth and comfort to remain wholeheartedly committed to the service of God and the neighbor. The world has its own view of what is desirable and good, and it misses the hidden condemnation that comes along with that. It ridicules the Christian's tolerant suffering of the hardships of life, our rejection of the shallow rewards of wealth and prestige. Unbelievers balk and snort at the scandal of the cross, and in that rejection, they miss its hidden joy and its eternal treasures. We ourselves may often even get confused. We may sometimes think that our sufferings or our setbacks are due to a lack of faith or are a punishment from God. On the other hand, we may also sometimes imagine that our successes are a result of our own doing or a reward from a God pleased with our works. These lies can drag us down, pulling us away from the foot of Jesus' cross and into a theology of glory. But the Holy Spirit sees deep far beyond the surface of the rich man or of Lazarus and even deep within us. Remember the blessings and the woes that Jesus spoke of in His Sermon on the Plain. Those who may be poor, hungry, and rejected in this life will, through faith, receive great rewards from God because of that faith. In contrast, 
those who are rich and comfortable and well-fed and satisfied and respected according to the measures of this world will, if they place their trust in anything but Christ crucified, find themselves separated from the blessings of eternal joy which God has prepared for His children. Faith expects good from God. Unbelief does not have that trust. And so the unbeliever seeks to gain good through their own efforts. Unbelief calls us to hoard our money and our possessions, to avoid and to reject the undesirable or the unattractive, to harden our hearts to the plights of the helpless. But faith motivates us to share, to give, and to love. Unbelief generates a selfishness which looks inward and tells us to claw and to scratch our way upward toward success. Faith sparks a love that looks outward. Outward and motivates us to reach downward, to extend our hand, to lift others up. Abraham makes it clear to the rich man that any sort of astounding or spectacular way of moving people to repentance and faith, such as he asked for his brothers to experience, is not God's way. Rather, people are to be led by Moses and the prophets, that is, by the Word of God, to understand both the message and the means of salvation. We are taught and we learn the will of God by His Word, by His Son, who fulfills all prophecy and enlightens us by His Holy Spirit. The Bible is clear over and over that it is the Scriptures which point to Christ. Philip testified to Nathanael, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus told the Jews, These are the Scriptures that testify about Me. By the writings of Moses and all the prophets, the resurrected Jesus instructed the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And in the locked upper room on that same Easter evening, He reminded His apostles that everything must be fulfilled that is written about Me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. It is in Scripture that we find all that we need to know about God's plan of salvation. Jesus opened the hearts and the minds of His followers to the necessary understanding in the same way that He opens ours, by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the Word. It seems odd, perhaps, that Ordinary words written thousands of years ago have the power to penetrate our hearts, to convict us of our sins, to move us to faith, and to spark us to love others. Yet God is always doing the extraordinary with ordinary things. While the world looks for the spectacular, God works in simple ways. Those who will not hear it or believe it will scoff and ridicule. But miracles come in ways that we do not expect. God is born as a human baby in a stable far off the beaten path. A humble carpenter is the anointed one of God. A gentle and sinless man is beaten and whipped, punctured by coarse nails and pays for all of your deeds, evil and words and thoughts and so forth in a rugged cross and a city dump heap. A dead man is raised to life, walks a dusty road, eats bread, grills fish, and ascends to heaven. Then ordinary men, a tax collector, 
a handful of fishermen, a tent maker and others, speak the Word of God and are so convinced of the truth of it that they confront governors and kings, soldiers and mobs, prison, peril, and even death itself in order to testify that truth to others. Through their writings, it has come to us as well. In that truth, in that Word, lives the hope that we hold in spite of the hunger and the sores and the rejections that we face on the doorsteps of this life. The same Jesus who said on the cross, it is finished, and it was, also said, baptize and teach, and so we do. The same Jesus who said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, and He did, also said, take, eat, this is My body given for you. Take drink, this is My blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And we receive it. His Word combined with ordinary water cleanses us of our sins in baptism. And His Word with ordinary bread and wine makes Him present with us and makes us present with all of the hosts of heaven. We can trust this Word with absolute certainty. We, have been, we who have been called by His Gospel and enlightened with the Spirit's gifts are also gathered here today, united with the entire Christian church on earth. Because these gifts of faith have been bestowed upon us, we like Lazarus can bear our worldly sufferings with patience and with hope. Because we receive His forgiveness and our being sanctified and kept in the one true faith each day, we can also gladly and willing, willingly demonstrate the love of Christ to all of those Lazaruses whom He places on our path. Grant these fruits of faith unto us all, O Lord, according to Your Word, for the sake of Your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.